Okay, so today is gonna be a little bit more discovery than I think that it is instruction. Like, hey, here's what you should do. It's gonna be a little more revelatory, perhaps, asking yourself in the power of the Spirit some really important questions. And so if you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, you're not normally in church, good to see you. We're gonna have a bit of a family chat today, and so you're a part of the family, so let's have a chat. And so heaven is a place where the lion and the lamb, they lie down together in perfect harmony. Yet today, lions would eat lambs on earth, all right? You put the both in the same proximity, the, the lion's gonna eat the lamb. One is gonna win, one's gonna lose. And so something on earth is out of skew with the reality of heaven. Yet we are a people who desire to see in Christ on earth as it is in heaven. And so in the midst of the world in which we live in, that is quite combative at the moment. Let me ask you a question. Again, internal questions, don't shout them out. Um, how would you define a good fight? How would you define internal, not external? How would you define a good fight? How would you define what it is? Some of you just thought like, well, a good fight is a fight that I win. And that's not necessarily a good fight. And so on Child Dedication Sunday, I think it's a helpful question because a skill in parenting is learning which fights to engage and which ones not to. As parents, that is an imperfect science. I don't think any parent gets that one perfectly, myself wholeheartedly included. Let me add a few layers as youth reflect on what, what and how you would define a good fight. In the Old Testament, Samson conquered the Philistines, but he never addressed the true enemy of his own soul. So was that a good fight? In one instance, sure. In another, entirely no. Uh, the rapper Lecrae notes this, that in the New Testament, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was willing to kill for Jesus. He just wasn't willing to die for Jesus. Is that a good fight? He was willing to destroy and harm others, but he was not willing to allow God to use his life at that particular moment to bring healing to others. Was that a good fight? If you know the scripture, I want you to finish it. Fight the good fight of... Fight the good fight of faith. But that's not precisely what 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 says. It says, fight the good fight of the faith. It's singular, not plural. And the reason why I address that is because oftentimes this scripture is used out of context. So every single issue that people want you to engage with, they'll say, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. We've got to fight the good fight of faith. But it's, it's not plural in terms of all of these sub-issues, though they matter. It is singular about fighting the good fight of the faith, of the gospel, of what it means to hold, take hold of the eternal life to which we were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so this week, as you're reading through Timothy on your way to Hebrews, in his pastoral letters, Paul has two aims to this young pastor, this young leader named Timothy, who was leading a church in Ephesus. He has two aims, and it's simply this, that following Jesus should touch our whole lives, not just our Sunday lives. In other words, how we live in the world, how we interact with one another, how we are in relationships with others, if it's marriage, if that's applicable to you, if not, it's how, whatever relationships you are, if it's a marriage one, uh, if it's parenting, it's in family dynamics, like, like how you work, how you engage with your boss. In other words, like how we live our lives, how we follow Jesus should impact all of our lives, not just our spiritual lives. 
She'd impact all of us. This is one of his core, core things that he's saying to this young leader. And the second one is this, that leaders should lead in a way that builds up, not tears down the very thing that Jesus is building. Be careful when you speak about his bride. Call it out aggressively when it is wrong, but also respectfully understanding that Jesus is building his church. And so Timothy is this young leader and he's pastoring this church in Ephesus and he's learning how to listen, love, lead well by discerning the difference between true and false teaching. It's not just different opinions. You live in a world with true and false teaching. It's everywhere. It's all around you. It isn't just different. It's true or it's false. And sometimes we have to embrace the biblical language, not just the cultural language that brings everything down. He's learning how to decipher between having money, which is a requirement, and then loving money. Well, where's the change between I need money to live, to pay my bills, to pay my rent or mortgage or go to school, so I need money as a currency, but where does it change between something I have and something that has my affections? He's trying to engage that. And lastly, he's trying to teach the church to learn how to fight like Jesus. In Revelations, it's really interesting because Jesus also commends the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelations for its faithful discernment between good and evil. In other words, this church in Ephesus has done really, really good in the midst of the culture in which it was fighting and discerning against what is true and false and good and evil, but there's a problem constantly fighting the battle for true versus false, good versus evil, constantly fighting it, what happens to the church in Ephesus is they get so accustomed and so formed by fighting that they lose their love for God and others who are different from them. And this is a powerful insight for the cultural moment, the combative cultural moment that we find ourselves in and that how fighting can form us. When I say fighting, I want you to think that some of y'all, you fight way too much. You just fight too much and you fight about everything and, 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 and the Lord needs to bring some healing to your heart. And there's others of you, you never fight anything and that's a problem. That's also a problem. And there's some of you who just fight all the wrong things and not necessarily the right things. And you say, well, yeah, well, who gets to define the right or wrong things? Well, for me, God gets to define those things. I often get caught fighting the wrong things. And we can pick good fights, but we can be left with a losing outcome. How many know that you can win an argument and lose a heart? You can win a debate and lose a friend. You can be right in what you see and completely wrong in how you engage it. And so all of this matters. And so let me be clear, we should get what we believe right. And that includes our statement of faith. We should get it right. But not at the expense of how we love God, our neighbor, and how we love our enemies. Now, if I were to ask you to identify, which I'm not, like, how many of you have an enemy? And you're like, yeah, that's me. And how many of you are sitting beside that enemy? Yes, I am. No, don't do that. Like, we would never do that. But if, if I was, like, when we think of enemies, we tend to think about people that we hate um, but that's not the best, that's not the only biblical definition of an enemy. An enemy is simply, simply also somebody who completely sees the world in opposition to the way you see the world. And so as the church of Jesus Christ in the world today, friendship with the world is opposition, an enemy of God. Yes? That's what we see in the scriptures. So an enemy is not only someone you hate, it's just oftentimes you're on diametrically different and opposed 
perspectives and the way in which we believe one lives, lives their life that leads to human flourishing. And so here's two reflection questions that I would ask is, who would you say, don't, again, do, please do not shout it out, just keep it inside. Who would you say lives life opposite to your core biblical or life convictions? Who, when they begin to talk, makes your blood boil? Who sees the world so different from you? Biblically, that would be the language of enemy friend. Not just through the lens of hate. Yes, you can absolutely end up hating your enemies for sure. I'm not discounting that. I'm saying though, sometimes we can be in deception because we can say, I don't hate anybody. But the biblical language of an enemy is not just the presence of hate. It's, it's recognizing those whom that we see the world completely opposite from, we are in danger of being the most unloving towards them even if we don't feel hate. So who would you say lives life opposite to your core biblical or life convictions? And how do you keep your heart tender towards God and them? And let's see how Paul mentors Timothy to be clear on both the what and then the how. It's quite interesting because when you sit down with most Canadians today, and, and, and you don't do this in a gotcha way, but you just do it in a genuine way and you ask a question like this, like what is your strategy in life? In living life, what is your strategy to keep your heart tender towards those who oppose you? Most of us have no strategy at all, which means that when we're in it, we're trying to figure out what to do in the midst of it. And normally that's a little bit too late to be trying to figure that out. Jesus knew who he was and how he was going to love before he engaged his ministry so that when he was in it, he was prepared for it. He could move in the opposite spirit. Oftentimes we haven't best thought through how we are going to love in opposition well, just hoping that we're like really nice people and people won't oppose us. But how many of you know that even nice people get opposed? A lot. And so the first call for Timothy to Paul is just be mindful that false teaching affects you. Everyone say false teaching. False teaching, not just different, false. False according to what? My perspective or your perspective? No, false according to God's word. If this is not the standard, then if this is not the defining of terms, and I'm defining terms by God's word, okay? And what it says in clarity, if it, this is the standard. If, if you have a different standard, we're having a different conversation. Like, like if you and I are having a conversation around like what I said and how it, it made you feel, and then you're talking to me, we're not talking about God's word here. We're just talking about something that's different. That's not true in false teaching. False teaching is taking something that God's word is very clear about and distorting it so that it fits our human. That's different from like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Would you forgive me? That's not what we're talking about. And so what we see here is that false teaching affects people in the church in two ways. Number one is they live in speculation rather than stewardship of the commands of Jesus. So we live, if false teaching is taking its root in the church body or in an individual's life, they begin to live in speculation all the time. You're more interested in things that you can't prove rather than it is stewarding the things that God has given you, such as how many of you here in this world have time? Can I see your hands, please? If you don't know, that's you. That's you. You have time. 
Um, is anybody here good at at least one thing? Just one thing. You good at one thing? You good at one thing? I'm good at not raising my hand. That's what I'm really good at, right? And I know some of you excel at it. Um, so we're good at certain things. And then how many of you in your life have ever had $1, just one whole dollar bill? Can I see your hands, please? Well, time, talent, and treasure. How do you steward those things? What the Bible says is that there's no such thing as becoming a steward. Every one of us is a steward. We're just a good steward or a bad steward. Right? I know it's hard language or it's clear language, but it's helpful language. And so we live in speculation rather than stewarding the time, talent, and treasure that God has given us. We live sometimes wondering, like, God, why have you blessed them? Why do they seem to be doing better than I mean? Speculation. False teaching grabs a hold. Why were they healed and not healed? Speculation. Rather than stewarding, God, I want to steward well the time that you have given me. Whether it's a lot or whether it's a little, God, you are the Lord of all. And the next is swerving rather than steadfastness. I want to be really, really clear. We as a church have one mission. It is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. Why do we exist? To make disciples. To make you more like Jesus. If we don't do that, we fail. Don't care how full it is. Don't care how great the worship is. If we don't make you more like Jesus in the power of the spirit, the church fails its mission. Jesus left the church one thing to do, not a hundred things to do. And so part of the role of church leadership is to hold this one thing really, really tight so that the church doesn't become swerving into doing a million different things that actually they all play a part in helping us become more like Jesus, but that the secondary things don't become the main thing. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a constant, it's a constant pull. And so he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Watch what he says. That by them you may wage the good warfare. So now he has said the good fight. And now he says the good warfare. What's good warfare? Well, great for us that in another letter, Paul actually says what is actually really poor warfare is when we believe that our fight is against flesh and blood. That's not good warfare. When I believe you're my enemy or my problem and my life will be better if I win over you, that's not a good fight. Even though I want to win. <laughs> it's not a good fight. It's not a good fight. And here's what he says. Watch this. Like he's saying, so this is like but when you understand there's powers and principalities and rulers that are unseen realm that are affecting the seen well and you pray and you wage war against those things, this is a good fight. By rejecting this and waging improper warfares that everything that is wrong in the world is because of those people. Paul says the more that gets in us, we don't lose our faith, we shipwreck it. That which is whole becomes broken apart. That which is solid is no longer solid. That which could take us from where we were to where we were going now is in a million pieces. A few months ago, we spoke about how sometimes faith is holding on to planks and pieces of God's provision to get us where God can next lead us but this shipwreck that Paul speaks of is of a profoundly different nature that we as individuals who follow Christ, but also as a church, we can shipwreck, not lose, we can shipwreck our faith. We can take what God intends to be whole and we can break it apart. And this is problematic. And so Paul tells Timothy that given some time, those who never have followed Jesus 
or have shipwrecked their faith, they begin to display specific characteristics. And I'm just going to read them from 1 Timothy 6, verses 4 to 5. Here's what it says. And it's this, it's, it's tremendous. I think it's beautiful articulation of the culture in which we live at times, including us as Christ followers. It says that they are, we are puffed up with conceit and we understand nothing. That's a dangerous combination right there. Like it should be the less I understand, the more humble I am. But have you noticed the world in which we live in now? Sometimes the less we understand, the louder we get. Like we read an article and we're experts. One, one, one article. Someone went to school for nine years and we read one article and we're an expert. Right? I'm just saying it, it, it's part of what we see in the world. In which, and I've done that. I've made that error. We have an unhealthy craving for controversy. We quarrel about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Here's what Timothy says. Here's the indicators. If, if someone never has followed Jesus, they may say they are, but they never have. Or if their faith has been shipwrecked, which by the way, God can also make whole and he can redeem. It says that they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Depraved in mind is simply an expression to be able to say they can no longer decipher between good and evil, right and wrong, according to God's standard. And second of all, that they are deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a mean of gain. Another identifier of a life being deformed by fighting is a life without peace. Characterized by a spirit that is discontent. Is your joy easily lost? Frustration that lives just right under the surface. The Lord wants to work if that's you in your heart and life. Questions. Again, today is not telling you what to do. It's a little bit more discovery. It's just kind of stirring up the water so the Holy Spirit can speak to us. Do you have a growing craving for controversy? Not are there things that are controversial in the world. There are. But do you seek it out consistently? Are you quick to quarrel with others? Like when you're talking with somebody, are you listening or are you waiting to talk again? Like when I'm in, when usually when I'm in conflict with somebody, I am listening for points that I'm going to rebut. <laughs> I am not listening to understand. I am listening to win. And this is a problem. This deforms. This is not a good fight. If you don't believe that spiritual warfare is real, try this next time you are fighting with someone. Like, I mean, actively engaged in conflict with another Christian. If they're not a Christian, this might be odd. You can try it, but I think it might be a bit odd. But if they are a Christ follower, in the heat, in the midst of your argument, stop and just begin to pray for one another. And don't pray like, God, show them that I'm right. Show them that the moron that they are, how stupid they are. Lord, if you want to smite them, I'd be okay with that. Like, <laughs> those are honest prayers. And I really, really applaud the honesty. What I'm saying, though, is a little more maturity, please. 
You know what you will find though in that moment? Here's what you will find, which is tremendously powerful. Your flesh will want to do anything and everything but pray with the person. Why? Because you don't want resolution. You want to fight and you want to win. And it feels like your flesh is dying. How do you know that? Because Lori and I have been married for 29 years. And in those 29 years, it's been three times that she's annoyed me. Only three but in that, there's been a few moments where we have looked at each other and stopped and said, we just need to begin to pray. And neither of us wants to do it. And we always start with it like half-hearted, begrudging. And the whole time I'm praying, all I'm thinking is, when are we going to get back to the conversation? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Because I can get so deformed by fighting. Do you enjoy othering, creating sides? Are you living in constant friction with others? The Lord may want to speak to you. Now, this is huge. You may at this point be thinking, well, Jesus often sparred with religious leaders. Like he fought with people. If you really read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll actually discover is they who fight with him a lot. But here's what I also want to note. We have, we have this wrong interpretation that Jesus loved sinners and tax collectors and he was against the Pharisees, scribes, and leaders. And you couldn't be more wrong if that's your interpretation. For God so loved the people of this world. So even when he is gauge, engaging with them, he does it from and for love and only from and for love. And so I'm not saying we can't ever get into it. I'm just saying I don't always get into it in the same way that Jesus did. It's different. Another little note that I would just kind of tuck in here is that a good fight is never one where in unity, true darkness is never named or opposed. In other words, if I'm always your enemy and you're always my enemy, then together as the body of Christ, we're never going after the real one. We're never naming darkness. We're never naming our common enemy when we make one another our exclusive enemies. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We just saw these little amazing kids. They brought this morning nothing. Their parents brought them. Their parents clothed them. They brought nothing into the world. They just showed up like, here I am. Feed me, change me, take care of me, right? Buy me shoes, send me to college. Like they, do, they brought nothing. They just showed up. That's what he's saying. Remember, you brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing and these will be, then with these things, be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not the existence of money and not the necessity of money, but the love of it, the affection of it, the worship of it is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Some of you, and I've seen it repeatedly as a pastor, some of you are one promotion away from, following, from stopping to follow Jesus because what you don't have now is our options and what you do have are options. You get a promotion and all of a sudden the things that were once convictions now become optional and you begin to swerve. It's interesting. I've just seen it time and time and time again. It's not about money. It's about what happens when it grabs hold of our heart. And it's the same in my heart. Like I, I set my tithe, I set my tithe. 
And it, it just automatically comes out of my account. I just use worship. Lori and I do it. We set our tithe. And if somebody just spontaneously says, here, I want to bless you with 20 bucks, I have to remember that two bucks of that is worship to the Lord. So here's what I do at the end of every year. I take my T4 and I take my tithe record and I look and they say, do they match? Because I don't want to rob God. I, I want to be in partnership with God. Okay, I'm going to keep going. And at times I also disclose to the council with full authenticity, this is what I've done this year so you can hold me accountable. Why does Paul warn Timothy about this in the church? Because there's a, com there's a competing love vying for the affections of our hearts. It's, sometimes it's God or it's money, which is really broken down into self-determination or spirit dependence. Only one is going to win. Okay, let's finish here. Paul then further encourages Timothy how to fight a good fight is first we got to flee, then we got to fight. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, everything we've just talked about. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So what's the good fight of faith, of the faith, excuse me? Pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Last scripture, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 21. I love this compelling vision because he just says, like, just be careful that money doesn't become your affection. Now watch this just slight change that he made. Not slight, it's significant, sorry. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you notice the difference there? Don't let your love and your affection be in riches. Let it be in the God who provides them. As long as your heart is rooted in God, then he can direct you. But the moment you think that these are all yours, then you're no longer stewarding, you're owning, and you're outside of the bounds of biblical stewardship. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing treasure for yourselves and a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, oh, Timothy, he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By, for, by, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith and then grace be to you. So I was thinking about how to conclude it and I wanna do two things to conclude. I wanna ask two more questions and then five helpful statements. Here are two questions. There's pastoral reflection questions and then five good fight indicators. Here's question one. With your enemy, with those who oppose you are, you, are you more committed to proving the other side wrong than being truthful? That's a question. In groups of individuals, do I hate the other side's lies yet won't address them in my own position, perspective? Oh, if you really love politics, politics, sorry, party, is it all about the other lies or do you call out the rot in your own? For we as the church, do we call out all the sin in the world and then we're ignorant to our own? Problematic. Five good fight indicators. How do you know that you are being formed and you are fighting the good fight of the faith in love? A good fight is when I grow. Yuck. A good fight is when I grow more patient and kind 
instead of arrogant and rude. A good fight is when I grow less irritable or resentful of others. How irritable are you? Especially my enemies. Like, is there, is there someone or a group of people that when they begin to talk, your primary response is irritation? Let the Lord go there. This next one's got weight, man. A good fight is when I grow and no longer rejoicing at wrongdoing. Even if I win through the wrongdoing, I don't rejoice in it, but I rejoice with the truth. When I do not need everything to go my way, I can lose and I still keep serving others. Pause. Our definition of winning and Jesus' definition of winning are entirely different. How do I know this? Because if you look at the cross from an earthly perspective, that looks like a complete loss. Doesn't it? Everybody who rose up against him in that moment, it looks like they won. But oh, if you only see it through Good Friday and not Resurrection Sunday, what you actually see when we look at the cross is this is a way to win that the world could not comprehend. For as high as my ways are from your ways, as high as my thoughts are from your thoughts, so are God's. Be careful that we don't define winning by things that Jesus would never call a win. Lastly, a good fight is when I grow to bear, believe, hope, and endure with others so that even my enemies can see God's love in me by how I treat them. All I know as I go through this in a place of humble discovery, all I know is I need to become a whole lot more like Jesus in this area and a whole lot less. All I know is how I define a good fight genuinely is a fight that I win. But the fights that I win, if they're deforming me from becoming more like Jesus, I'm really losing. And the same is true for you and the same is true for the church. And so Lord, would you help us to be formed by what it is to fight the good fight of the faith in a time that is so combative, may we not be formed by the fighting of this world, but may we be transformed by the Spirit of God in the way of following Jesus.